do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. My youngest son, Caleb, has a very interesting diet. Um, he likes Cheez-Its and uh, cheese puffs and cheese sticks and mac and cheese. On occasion, he will eat oatmeal. But what he really likes is smoothies. You know the type of smoothies that you buy at the supermarket, supermarket at the yogurt session? But he doesn't like any kind of smoothies. He likes Lala smoothies. And so when the thing about these smoothies is they only sell them in certain supermarkets. And so when I go to the supermarket and I find Lala smoothies, I take everything that is in the counter and put it in my shopping basket. And so if you like Lala smoothies and you went to the supermarket and there was none, it probably wasn't me. My apologies in advance. We have really tried to get Caleb to uh, like other types of smoothies. So we uh, have um, uh, resorted to some really ingenious tricks like uh, taking his sippy cup and putting the other brand of smoothie in the sippy cup without him knowing. And so we would hand him his sippy cup and he would taste it and smell it, put a little on his finger, and, and, and he said, uh-uh, not smoothie. And what he means, it's not Lala smoothie. You see, it's Lala smoothie, therefore it tastes like Lala smoothie. It smells like Lala smoothie. It has the texture of Lala smoothie because it is Lala smoothie. In the same way, God acts lovingly toward us and shares his love toward us because he is love and his love has an impact on our lives. And when his love impacts our lives, it flows out to others. And when the love of God is operating in our lives, it looks a specific kind of way. And John gives some really good theological justification for this truth here, beginning at verse 7. Let's start reading there. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. John addresses his audience as beloved. The Greek adjective agapetes means divine loved ones. He immediately lets his audience know that they are loved by God. Then he urges them to love one another with a self-sacrificing service. 
This love is not necessarily directed towards someone who is attractive or lovable. The reason believers are to extend such love to one another is that love is from God. Just as God is life and the source of life and light and goodness and power, he is love. And as believers, we possess his love and we walk in his life and his light and we walk in his righteousness and truth. And when this is true, we will both possess and express the love of God. Now in these verses, verses 7 through 9, there are called for us to love one another because God is love. In fact, loving each other is evidence that we are disciples. John chapter 13, verse 35 says this, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Loving one another gives evidence that we are his followers. Loving one another gives evidence that we know him. The text says, whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God, which brings us to point number one. God's love is knowable. When we are born of God, we will love others because we know God. As his children, we will manifest his nature. As his children, we will reflect his love to others. In other words, those who possess the life of God can both experience and express God's love. In contrast, those who do not love God do not know God. Those who do not love God and love others do not know God. Those whose lives are not characterized by love are not Christians, no matter what they claim. Just like the religious people in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and just like the false teachers in John's day, they knew a lot about God, but they really didn't know God the person. And their lack of love for others revealed their unregenerate, unbelieving hearts. In other words, their lack of love revealed that they were not born again. And for the false teachers, a big sign of this was their false doctrine and their erroneous theologies. But what does it mean to be born again? To be born again means to be Regenerated. These two terms are used interchangeably in the scriptures. And theologian Wayne Grudem defines regeneration as follows. It is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Being born again is evidenced by knowing God. And, God, and, and knowing God and being born of God go hand in hand. When we are born of God, we will know God. 
Titus chapter 3 verse 5 teaches us a little bit more about regeneration when he says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If we go back a chapter in John chapter 3, verse 1, John alludes to this same idea when he says, Beloved, behold what manner the Father has lavished or bestowed or poured out upon us that we shall be called the sons of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul also talks about this born-again uh, idea where he says, If any man is in Christ... He is a new creation. In fact, Jesus was more emphatic. He says, you must be born again. If you are not born again, you cannot see, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Some folks claim to be born again, yet their lifestyle and their intentions and their affections and their attitudes and their actions do not give evidence that they know God. Others claim to know God, but they only have intellectual knowledge about God. But again, the word here uh, in to, to know is the Greek word ginosko, which means to know experientially. Uh, recently, uh, my son Tito, he... Uh, was terrified of dogs and recently we had a breakthrough and he actually uh, petted a dog and, and played with the dog and had the dog lick him disgusting and and so, but he used to be so terrified of dogs that one time we went to the, uh, to the home of a relative and they had a dog and they had to put him up because he was so scared of dogs and somehow the dog got loose and Tito ran and jumped over the couch and fell and flipped, hit his face on some piece of furniture and busted his lip, got up quickly. I didn't know a child could move that fast and jumped up quickly and into my arms and daddy, daddy, the dog. That's how afraid he was of dogs. He knew what a dog looked like. He knew what a dog sounded like. He could draw a dog on a piece of paper, but not until recently did he actually know a dog and pet the dog and play with the dog. He knew the dog from experience and not from observation. Paul speaks of his desire to want to know God this way when he says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He wanted to know God in an intimate way. The question is, do you know the God the person or do you know a lot of information about the Bible? Do I know God the person in terms of having a relationship with him or do I have a bunch of theological information in my head? So you see, knowing God intellectually does not always equal knowing God personally or experientially. Do you know God this morning? Do you know his love? This brings us to verse number 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he abides in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in him, love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world these verses teach us that God initiated our salvation Hebrews 12 2 says that God is the author and the finisher of our faith he is the one who originates our salvation and the one who brings it to completion we are also taught that the Son of God appeased the wrath of God by sacrificing his life. That's that word propitiation. And thus paying the penalty or paying the debt that we had. He also reminds us that when we, we love one another, his love is perfected and matured in our lives. He goes on to say that even though no one has ever seen God, when we love one another, it becomes a visible expression of God's love. Then he says, if we confess Jesus as the Son of God, we abide in God, and God abides in us. And when we abide or remain in God, his love is perfected and matured in our lives. And this gives us confidence because we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And thus, we have the assurance and hope of eternal life. Now, what I find interesting is that between verses 9 and 15, at least six times, Jesus Christ is referenced in some way. He's referenced in verse 9 as the Son. And in verse 10, he is referenced as the Son. And in verse 14, as the Son again. And also in verse 14, he's mentioned as the Savior of the world. He's mentioned as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 15. There seems to be a big emphasis on Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. John frames his theology around Jesus. John is teaching us that God gave us the ultimate model of love and how to love in God's Son, Jesus Christ, which brings us to point number two. God's love is Christ-centered. There are too many things in life that can distract us from Christ. And when we get distracted, we can inadvertently adopt unbiblical models of Christian living. I was watching one of those uh, Christian movies the other day, and one of the characters in one of the scenes said something really interesting. He said, is your life submitted to Christ, or is Jesus something you just add to your life? 
Now, sometimes in order to process uh, abstract concepts and biblical truth, I like uh, to use uh, illustrations or I like to use charts and graphs. And so I created some slide for you to help you uh, understand what I'm talking about. See, this uh, slide, this uh, represents our time. It represents how we spend our time and we spend our time with our finances and we spend our time with our friends and we spend our time in leisure and we spend our time in work and education and sleep and all of our time becomes consumed with these things and, and somehow we start doing the Christian life just trying to fit God in to our time. Instead of giving God the first slice of the pie, seek first the kingdom of God, we somehow live our lives trying to fit him in. Now, the second slide is a more biblical model that I think that is what John is getting at here, that Christ is at the center of our lives, or that we build and do our lives surround centered around communing and connecting and feasting on Christ. And when this is true about us, it touches every aspect of our lives. It touches our sleep, our finances, our friends, our health, our leisure, our family, our work, because Christ is at the center of our lives. Is your life centered around your relationship with Christ? Or is Jesus something you just add to your life occasionally? In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul said that in all things, he, meaning Christ, must have the preeminence. That word preeminence means the place of priority or the first place. You see, when we are abiding in God's love, and God's love is abiding in us, we will want for Christ to have the first place in all things. Oh, I want to ask you a question. Is Christ first in all things in your life or just in some things? In asking you this question, I too am convicted because I realize that there are still areas in my life that the Lord is maturing and I have to make acts of sanctifying grace and I at times I choose to operate based on my preferences and references instead of putting Christ first. The Apostle Paul alludes to the same idea when he's speaking to some uh, Greek philosophers in Athens. He speaks to them about what theologians call the eminence of God. The eminence of God teaches us that God is present in time and space and near to us. Why is this important? It's important because it encourages us to live life abundantly, to share in his goodness, to know him, to spread his love, his grace, his beauty, and truth, and justice throughout the world. Paul teaches these Greek philosophers about the eminence of God by quoting one of their own Greek poets named Epimenides. And in Acts 17, verse 28, he says these words, in him we live and move and have our being as one of your own poets has said. He is teaching us that our lives need to be enveloped by Christ. He's teaching us that our lives need to be saturated 
by Christ. He's teaching us that our lives have to be overflowing with Christ. In him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. Now let me say this in passing, our lives not only need to uh, have to be Christ-centered, but also our identity needs to be rooted in Christ. Some of us are way too concerned with what other people think. We become preoccupied with whether or not people value us. Some of us are overly concerned with whether or not people like us. We spend time stressing about what other people think about us. Some of us are way too focused on having friends. Some of us are frustrated because people don't recognize our gifts. I want to say something that I hope will free you. To quote Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what they think. Now, yes, we don't want to be offensive. Yes, we don't want to be a stumbling block. Yes, we don't want to give the appearance of evil. But at the end of the day, God is on the throne. God is the one who promotes. He's the one that brings down. He's the one that exalts. He's the one that brings justice. He's the almighty God created that created the universe. And if he is for you, who can be against you? It only matters what God thinks. The, the Apostle Paul, uh, in teaching about this very same concept in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Hebrews 6.10 says it this way, God is not unjust to forget your labor of love. Listen to me. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. So live your life for an audience of one. The creator of the universe. But God's love is not only Christ-centered, it is also empowering, which brings us to point number three. In verse 13, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because God has given us his spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit not only gives evidence that we are born again, but the Holy Spirit empowers us to love. The Holy Spirit causes us to bear the fruit of love. The Holy Spirit causes us to display love. Oh, I love a verse that is in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The Spirit of God anoints us and empowers us to do good and to be effective in life and in ministry. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Not give, you shall be. Paul, 
Paul, speaking of the love of God, teaches us that the love of God compels us. That word compels in the original actually means to constrain or, or, or to control. You see, it's the love of God that motivates us. It's the love of God that inspires us. It's the love of God that invigors, invigorates us. And when we experience God's love, it will elicit a response because the fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh, I want to ask you another question. Pastor Tito, you sure ask a lot of questions. Have you experienced God's love? Is there evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And this brings us to point number four. God's love is redemptive. For verse 14 says, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. God sent his son to save us from our sins and from eternal separation from God. His love redeemed us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins to clear our debt. And by doing so, he redeemed us or bought us back. The blood of Jesus paid the price to appease the wrath of God that was against us. Our salvation was a sovereign act of God's love. We all know the text, John chapter 3, verse 16. Excuse me for a second. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. You see, God sent his son because we were separated. We had this thing called inherited sin from our father Adam. And because of this, we are by children, by, by nature, children of wrath and separated from God. Therefore, God sent his son into the world to die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. And he was buried and placed in a tomb and on the third day rose again from the dead to give us the hope of eternal life and to prove that he was indeed God. And now simply by us repenting of our sins and believing the core fact of the gospel that Jesus is God and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose bodily from the dead and receiving Christ into our lives, we are saved. We are born again. Have you done that today? Now, in verses uh, 9 through 11, we see that God takes the initiative to send his son into the world that we might be saved through him, not because we loved him, but because he first loved us. And as a result, the invigorating love of God gives us the power to love others. When we love God, the natural outflow of that will be love toward others. And when we see this in our lives, we can have confidence in his salvation, which brings us to verse number 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love 
cast out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Those who have been perfected or matured in love do not have to fear eternal punishment. When we are mature in love, we were not afraid of punishment, neither in this life or the life to come, which brings us to point number five. God's love is liberating. When God's love is matured in our lives, we are free from the fear of eternal punishment, and we are free from the fear of people. Let me say something that I think will help some of you. It's very hard to love people when you're trying to protect yourselves from them. Now, let me bracket that I'm not talking about abusive people. I'm not talking about criminals. I'm not talking about people who are sick in the head that would be unwise. But I'm talking about regular, everyday Christians who are sinful just like us. We cannot love people hiding behind a wall. We cannot love people when we are giving them the stiff arm because we are too afraid that they might disappoint us. Perfect love casts out fear. God's love does not produce fear. In one sense, the, the punishment spoken in this verse is a fear that enslaves us. And when we are gripped by our fears, our fears will punish us by enslaving us. In other words, we are punished by our own fears. And God wants us to be free. Galatians 5.1 says, Walk in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. If the Son has made you free, you are free indeed. What a joy. What an assurance that God's love frees us from the fear of punishment. God's love frees us from the fear of what people might do to us. God's love frees us from the, people, the fear of what people might not do to us or might not give us. What a wonderful love. God's love is not only liberating, but it is also truthful. This brings us to verse 19. Listen to what verse 19 says. When we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Our love for God, as I said before, is a response to his love. We love him because he first loved us. For this reason, when we say that we love God, we are commanded to love our brothers. If we do not love our fellow believers, we are being untruthful. For it says, if we say that we love God and hate our brothers, we are liars. We are not abiding. In the truth of God's love. And this brings us to our sixth and final point. I'm going to bring up the worship team.
One of our core values here at Coastal is love. We always ask ourselves in any given situation, what's the most loving thing that we can do here? Yet we live in a culture where truth is relative. People use terms like my truth, your truth, their, their truth. Some people hate truth. They're okay with encouragement. They're okay with grace. They're okay with mercy. They're okay with patience and kindness. But the moment you speak truth, they want to label it hate speech. Or you're hurting my feelings. Or you're not being kind. Or you're judging me. Listen, my friends, at times, the most loving thing you can do for someone is to speak the truth in love, as it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. The flip side of that is this, where it is very unloving if we refuse to speak the truth to someone whom we say we love. It is a contradiction to say, I am for love, but I hate truth. When we love God and we love others, we will also love the truth. The reason we love God is because we love truth. When we love God, we love truth. John, in his third epistle, which is only one chapter, in the fourth verse, he says these words, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, let me conclude with this. We have just dealt with a very challenging passage of Scripture that calls us to consider if we are abiding in God's love, if we know God's love, and if we are loving our brethren. And in a crowd like this, inevitably there are different kinds of people. They are people who are unsaved. They're people who are backsliders. They're people who are uncertain about their salvation. And they're people who are feeling defeated. And as, you, as we enter into a time of prayer and ministry, I want you to ask yourself some questions. I want you to reflect upon the message. Are you loving others well? Are you assured that you are loved by God? Do you know him and his love? Are you abiding in his love? Are you saved? Have you made Jesus Christ your personal savior? Are you uncertain of your salvation? Has your love for God and for others become cold? As we enter into a time of prayer today, I want to encourage you not to leave this place without first doing business with God. There are going to be some people under the screens to pray with you about these things that I've been talking to you about. It is my hope that as a result of our time together today, that you will experience and express and abide and know God's love in a way that you never have before. Would you stand to, to your feet and let us pray? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word. 
You said in your word that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And so I ask this morning, Lord, as we enter into this time of ministry, Lord, touch hearts, change lives, but most of all, glorify yourself in Jesus' name. Amen.